Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Section 11 of Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. Chapter 11. I attend a prayer meeting. Punishment, therefore, threatened. I attempt to escape alone. My return to take my family. Our sufferings. Dreadful attack of wolves. Our recapture. Some months after Melinda had recovered from her sickness, I got permission from the deacon on one Sabbath day to attend a prayer meeting on a neighboring plantation with a few old superannuated slaves, although this was contrary to the custom of the country, for slaves were not allowed to assemble for religious worship. Being more numerous than the whites, there was fear of rebellion and the overpowering of their oppressors in order to obtain freedom. But this gentleman, on whose plantation I attended the meeting, was not a deacon nor a professor of religion. He was not afraid of a few old Christian slaves rising up to kill their master because he allowed them to worship God on the Sabbath day. We had a very good meeting. Although our exercises were not conducted in accordance with an enlightened Christianity, for we had no Bible, no intelligent leader, but a conscience prompted by our own reason constrained us to worship God the Creator of all things. When I returned home from meeting, I told the other slaves what a good time we had at our meeting, and requested them to go with me to meeting there on the next Sabbath. As no slave was allowed to go from the plantation on a visit without a written pass from his master, on the next Sabbath several of us went to the deacon to get permission to attend that prayer meeting. But he refused to let any go. I thought I would slip off and attend the meeting and get back before he would miss me and would not know that I had been to the meeting. When I returned home from the meeting, as I approached the house, I saw Melinda standing out at the fence, looking in the direction in which I was expected to return. She hailed my approach, not with joy, but with grief. She was weeping under great distress of mind, but it was hard for me to extort from her the reason why she wept. She finally informed me that her master had found out that I had violated his law, and I should suffer the penalty which was five hundred lashes on my naked back. I asked her how she knew that I had gone. She said I had not long been gone before he called for me, and I was not to be found. 
He then sent the overseer on horseback to the place where we were to meet to see if I was there. But when the overseer got to the place, the meeting was over, and I had gone back home, but had gone a nearer route through the woods, and the overseer happened not to meet me. He heard that I had been there and hurried back home before me and told the deacon, who ordered him to take me on the next morning, strip off my clothes, drive down four stakes in the ground, and fasten my limbs to them, then strike me five hundred lashes for going to the prayer meeting. This was what distressed my poor companion. She thought it was more than I could bear and that it would be the death of me. I concluded then to run away but she thought they would catch me with the bloodhounds by their taking my track. But to avoid them, I thought I would ride off on one of the deacon's mules. She thought if I did, they would sell me. No matter. I will try it, said I. Let the consequences be what they may. The matter can be no worse than it is now. So I tackled up the deacon's best mule with his saddle, etc., and started that night and went off eight or ten miles from home. But I found the mule to be rather troublesome, and was like to betray me by braying, especially when he could see cattle, horses, or anything of the kind in the woods. The second night from home I camped in a cane break, down in the Red River Swamp, not a great way off from the road, perhaps not twenty rods, exposed to wild, ferocious beasts which were numerous in that section of the country. On that night, about the middle of the night, the mule heard the sound of horses' feet on the road, and he commenced to stamping and trying to break away. As the horses seemed to come nearer, the mule commenced trying to bray, and it was all that I could do to prevent him from making a loud bray there in the woods, which would have betrayed me. I suppose that it was the overseer out with the dogs looking for me, and I found afterwards that I was not mistaken. As soon as the people had passed by, I mounted the mule and took him home to prevent his betraying me. When I got nearby home, I stripped off the tackling and turned the mule loose. I then slipped up to the cabin wherein my wife laid, and found her awake, much distressed about me. She informed me that they were then out looking for me, and that the deacon was bent on flogging me nearly to death, and then selling me off from my family. This was truly heart-rending to my poor wife. The thought of our being torn apart in a strange land after having been sold away from all her friends and relations was more than she could bear. The deacon had declared that I should not only suffer for the crime of attending a prayer meeting without his permission, and for running away, but for the awful crime of stealing a jackass, which was death by the law when committed by a negro. But I well knew that I was regarded as property, and so was the ass, and I thought if one piece of property took off another, there could be no law violated in the act, no more sin committed in this than if one jackass had rode off another. But after consultation with my wife, I concluded to take her and my little daughter with me, and they would be guilty of the same crime that I was, so far as running away was concerned, and if the deacon sold one, he might sell us all, and perhaps to the same person. So we started off with our child that night and made our way down to the Red River swamps among the buzzing insects and wild beasts of the forest. We wandered about in the wilderness for eight or ten days before we were apprehended striving to make our way from slavery. But it was all in vain. Our food was parched corn with wild fruit such as pawpaws, persimmons, grapes, etc. 
We did at one time chance to find a sweet potato patch where we got a few potatoes. But most of the time, while we were out, we were lost. We wanted to cross the Red River, but could find no conveyance to cross in. I recollect one day of finding a crooked tree which bent over the river, or over one fork of the river, where it was divided by an island. I should think that the tree was at least twenty feet from the surface of the water. I picked up my little child, and my wife followed me, saying, If we perish, let us all perish together in the stream. We succeeded in crossing over. I often look back to that dangerous event, even now, with astonishment, and wonder how I could have run such a risk. What would induce me to run the same risk now? What could induce me now to leave home and friends and go to the wild forest and lay out on the cold ground night after night without covering? and live on parched corn. What would induce me to take my family and go into the Red River swamps of Louisiana among the snakes and alligators with all the liabilities of being destroyed by them, hunted down with bloodhounds, or lay myself liable to be shot down like the wild beasts of the forest? Nothing, I say. Nothing but the strongest love of liberty, humanity, and justice to myself and family would induce me to run such a risk again. When we crossed over on the tree, we supposed that we had crossed over the main body of the river. But we had not proceeded far on our journey before we found that we were on an island surrounded by water on either side. We made our bed that night in a pile of dry leaves which had fallen from off the trees. We were much rest-broken, wearied from hunger, and traveling through briars, swamps, and cane brakes. Consequently, we soon fell asleep after lying down. About the dead hour of the night I was aroused by the awful howling of a gang of bloodthirsty wolves which had found us out and surrounded us as their prey, there in the dark wilderness, many miles from any house or settlement. My dear little child was so dreadfully alarmed that she screamed loudly with fear, my wife trembling like a leaf on a tree at the thought of being devoured there in the wilderness by ferocious wolves. The wolves kept howling, and were near enough for us to see their glaring eyes and hear their chattering teeth. I then thought that the hour of death for us was at hand, that we should not live to see the light of another day, for there was no way for our escape. My little family were looking up to me for protection, but I could afford them none. And while I was offering up my prayers to that God who never forsakes those in the hour of danger who trust in Him, I thought of Deacon Whitfield. I thought of his profession, and doubted his piety. I thought of his handcuffs, of his whips, of his chains, of his stocks, of his thumbscrews, of his slave-driver and overseer, and of his religion. I also thought of his opposition to prayer meetings, and of his five hundred lashes promised me for attending a prayer meeting. I thought of God. I thought of the devil. I thought of hell. And I thought of heaven, and wondered whether I should ever see the deacon there and I calculated that if heaven was made up of such deacons or such persons, it could not be filled with love to all mankind, and with glory and eternal happiness, as we know it is from the truth of the Bible. The reader may perhaps think me tedious on this topic, but indeed it is one of so much interest to me that I find myself entirely unable to describe what my own feelings were at that time. I was so much excited by the fierce howling of the savage wolves and the frightful screams of my little family that I thought of the future. I thought of the past. I thought the time of my departure had come at last. My impression is 
that all these thoughts and thousands of others flashed through my mind while I was surrounded by those wolves. But it seemed to be the will of a merciful providence that our lives should be spared and that we should not be destroyed by them. I had no weapon of defense, but a long bowie knife which I had slipped from the deacon. It was a very splendid blade, about two feet in length and about two inches in width. This used to be a part of his armor of defense while walking about the plantation among his slaves. The plan which I took to expel the wolves was a very dangerous one, but it proved effectual. While they were advancing to me, prancing and accumulating in number, apparently of all sizes and grades, who had come to the feast, I thought just at this time that there was no alternative left but for me to make a charge with my bowie knife. I well knew from the action of the wolves that if I made no farther resistance, they would soon destroy us, and if I made a break at them, the matter could be no worse. I thought if I must die, I would die striving to protect my little family from destruction, die striving to escape from slavery. My wife took a club in one hand and her child in the other, while I rushed forth with my bowie knife in hand to fight off the savage wolves. I made one desperate charge at them, and at the same time making a loud yell at the top of my voice that caused them to retreat and scatter, which was equivalent to a victory on our part. Our prayers were answered, and our lives spared through the night. We slept no more that night, and the next morning there were no wolves to be seen or heard, and we resolved not to stay on that island another night. We traveled up and down the riverside trying to find a place where we could cross, Finally, we found a lot of driftwood clogged together, extending across the stream at a narrow place in the river, upon which we crossed over. But we had not yet surmounted our greatest difficulty. We had to meet one which was far more formidable than the first. Not many days after, I had to face the deacon. We had been wandering about through the cane brakes, bushes, and briars for several days, when we heard the yelping of bloodhounds a great way off but they seemed to come nearer and nearer to us. We thought after a while that they must be on our track. We listened attentively at the approach. We knew it was no use for us to undertake to escape from them, and as they drew nigh, we heard the voice of a man hissing on the dogs. After a while we saw the hounds coming in full speed on our track, and the soul drivers close after them on horseback, yelling like tigers as they came in sight. The shrill yelling of the savage bloodhounds as they drew nigh made the woods echo. The first impulse was to run to escape the approaching danger of ferocious dogs and bloodthirsty slave hunters who were so rapidly approaching me with loaded muskets and bowie knives, with a determination to kill or capture me and my family. I started to run with my little daughter in my arms, but stumbled and fell down and scratched the arm of little Francis with a briar, so that it bled very much. But the dear child never cried, for she seemed to know the danger to which we were exposed. But we soon found that it was no use for us to run. The dogs were soon at our heels, and we were compelled to stop or be torn to pieces by them. By this time the soul drivers came charging up on their horses, commanding us to stand still, or they would shoot us down. Of course, I surrendered up for the sake of my family the most abusive terms to be found in the English language, were poured forth on us with bitter oaths. They tied my hands behind me, and drove us home before them to suffer the penalty of a slaveholder's broken law. 
As we drew nigh the plantation, my heart grew faint. I was aware that we should have to suffer almost death for running off. I was filled with dreadful apprehensions at the thought of meeting a professed follower of Christ, whom I knew to be a hypocrite. No tongue, no pen can ever describe what my feelings were at that time. End of chapter 11 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista Section 12 of Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. Chapter 12 My Sad Condition Before Whitfield My Terrible Punishment Incidents of a Former Attempt to Escape Jack at a Farmhouse Six Pigs and a Turkey Our Surprise and Arrest The reader may perhaps imagine what must have been my feelings when I found myself surrounded on the island with my little family at midnight by a gang of savage wolves. This was one of those trying emergencies in my life when there was apparently but one step between us and the grave. But I had no cords wrapped about my limbs to prevent my struggling against the impending danger to which I was then exposed. I was not denied the consolation of resisting in self-defense, as was now the case. There was no deacon standing before me with a loaded rifle, swearing that I should submit to the torturing lash or be shot down like a dumb beast. I felt that my chance was by far better among the howling wolves in the Red River Swamp than before Deacon Whitfield on the cotton plantation. I was brought before him as a criminal before a bar, without counsel, to be tried and condemned by a tyrant's law. My arms were bound with a cord, my spirit broken, and my little family standing by weeping. I was not allowed to plead my own cause, and there was no one to utter a word in my behalf. He ordered that the field hands should be called together to witness my punishment, that it might serve as a caution to them never to attend a prayer meeting or run away as I had, lest they should receive the same punishment. At the sound of the overseer's horn, all the slaves came forward and witnessed my punishment. My clothing was stripped off, and I was compelled to lie down on the ground with my face to the earth. Four stakes were driven in the ground, to which my hands and feet were tied. Then the overseer stood over me with the lash and laid it on according to the deacon's order. Fifty lashes were laid on before stopping. I was then lectured with reference to my going to prayer meeting without his orders and running away to escape flogging. While I suffered under this dreadful torture, I prayed and wept and implored mercy at the hand of slavery, but found none. After I was marked from my neck to my heels, the deacon took the gory lash and said he thought there was a spot on my back yet where he could put in a few more. He wanted to give me something to remember him by, he said. After I was flogged, almost to death in this way, a paddle was brought forward and eight or ten blows given me with it, which was by far worse than the lash. My wounds were then washed with salt brine, after which I was let up. A description of such paddles I have already given in another page. 
I was so badly punished that I was not able to work for several days. After being flogged, as described, they took me off several miles to a shop and had a heavy iron collar riveted on my neck with prongs extending above my head, on the end of which there was a small bell. I was not able to reach the bell with my hand. This heavy load of iron I was compelled to wear for six weeks. I never was allowed to lie in the same house with my family again while I was the slave of Whitfield. I either had to sleep with my feet in the stocks, or be chained with a large log overnight, with no bed or bedding to rest my wearied limbs on, after toiling all day in the cotton field. I suffered almost death while kept in this confinement, and he had ordered the overseer never to let me loose again, saying that I thought of getting free by running off, but no negro should ever get away from him alive. I have omitted to state that this was the second time I had run away from him. While I was gone the first time, he extorted from my wife the fact that I had been in the habit of running away before we left Kentucky, that I had been to Canada, and that I was trying to learn the art of reading and writing. All this was against me. It is true that I was striving to learn myself to write. I was a kind of a house-servant and was frequently sent off on errands, but never without a written pass, and on Sundays I have sometimes got permission to visit our neighbor's slaves, and I have often tried to write myself a pass. Whenever I got hold of an old letter that had been thrown away or a piece of white paper, I would save it to write on. I have often gone off in the woods and spent the greater part of the day alone trying to learn to write myself a pass by writing on the backs of old letters, copying after the pass that had been written by Whitfield. By so doing, I got the use of the pen and could form letters as well as I can now, but knew not what they were. The deacon had an old slave by the name of Jack, whom he bought about the time that he bought me. Jack was born in the state of Virginia. He had some idea of freedom, had often run away, but was very ignorant, knew not where to go for refuge, but understood all about providing something to eat when unjustly deprived of it. So, for ill-treatment, we concluded to take a tramp together. I was to be the pilot, while Jack was to carry the baggage and keep us in provisions. Before we started, I managed to get hold of a suit of clothes the deacon possessed, with his gun, ammunition, and bowie knife. We also procured a blanket, a joint of meat, and some bread. We started in a northern direction, being bound for the city of Little Rock, state of Arkansas. We traveled by night and laid by in the day, being guided by the unchangeable North Star. But at length, our provisions gave out, and it was Jack's place to get more. We came in sight of a large plantation one morning where we saw people of color, and Jack said he could get something there, among the slaves that night, for us to eat. So we concealed ourselves in sight of this plantation until about bedtime, when we saw the lights extinguished. During the day we saw a female slave passing from the dwelling-house to the kitchen, as if she was the cook, the house being about three rods from the landlord's dwelling. After we supposed the whites were all asleep, Jack slipped up softly to the kitchen to try his luck with the cook, to see if he could get anything from her to eat. I would remark that the domestic slaves are often found to be traitors to their own people, for the purpose of gaining favor with their masters and they are encouraged and trained up by them to report every plot they know of being formed about stealing anything, or running away, or anything of the kind, and for which they are paid. 
this is one of the principal causes of the slaves being divided among themselves and without which they could not be held in bondage one year and perhaps not half that time i now proceed to describe the unsuccessful attempt of poor jack to obtain something from the female slave to satisfy hunger the planter's house was situated on an elevated spot on the side of a hill the fencing about the house and garden was very crookedly laid up with rails the night was rather dark and rainy and jack left me with the understanding that i was to stay at a certain place until he returned i cautioned him before he left me to be very careful and after he started i left the place where he was to find me when he returned for fear something might happen which might lead to my detection should i remain at that spot so i left it and went off where i could see the house and that place too jack had not long been gone before i heard a great noise a man crying out with a loud voice catch him catch him and hissing the dogs on and they were close after jack the next thing i saw was jack running for life and an old white man after him with a gun and his dogs the fence being on sidling ground and wet with the rain when jack run against it he knocked down several panels of it and fell tumbling over and over to the foot of the hill but soon recovered and ran to where he had left me but i was gone the dogs were still after him there happened to be quite a thicket of small oak shrubs and bushes in the direction he ran i think he might have been heard running and straddling bushes a quarter of a mile the poor fellow hurt himself considerably in straddling over bushes in that way in making his escape finally the dogs relaxed their chase and poor jack and myself again met in the thick forest he said when he rapped on the cookhouse door the colored woman came to the door he asked her if she would let him have a bite of bread if she had it that he was a poor hungry absconding slave but she made no reply to what he said but immediately sounded the alarm by calling loudly after her master saying here is a runaway negro jack said that he was going to knock her down but her master was out within one moment and he had run for his life as soon as we got our eyes fixed on the north star again we started on our way we traveled on a few miles and came to another large plantation where jack was determined to get something to eat he left me at a certain place while he went up to the house to find something if possible he was gone some time before he returned but when i saw him coming he appeared to be very heavy loaded with a bag of something we walked off pretty fast until we got some distance in the woods jack then stopped and opened his bag in which he had six small pigs i asked him how he got them without making any noise and he said that he found a bed of hogs in which there were the pigs with their mother while the pigs were sucking he crawled up to them without being discovered by the sow and took them by their necks one after another and choked them to death and slipped them into his bag we intended to travel on all that night and lay by the next day in the forest and cook up our pigs we fell into a large road leading on the direction which we were traveling and had not proceeded over three miles before i found a white hat lying in the road before me jack being a little behind me i stopped until he came up and showed it to him he picked it up we looked a few steps farther and saw a man lying by the way either asleep or intoxicated as we supposed i told jack not to take the hat but he would not obey me he had only a piece of a hat himself which he left in exchange for the other we traveled on about five miles farther and in passing a house 
discovered a large turkey sitting on the fence, which temptation was greater than Jack could resist. Notwithstanding he had six very nice fat little pigs on his back, he stepped up and took the turkey off the fence. By this time it was getting near daylight, and we left the road and went off a mile or so among the hills of the forest, where we struck camp for the day. We then picked our turkey, dressed our pigs, and cooked two of them. We got the hair off by singeing them over the fire, and after we had eaten all we wanted, one of us slept while the other watched. We had flint, punk, and powder to strike fire with. A little after dark the next night, we started on our way. By about ten o'clock that night, just as we were passing through a thick skirt of woods, five men sprang out before us with firearms, swearing if we moved another step, they would shoot us down. And each man having a gun drawn up for shooting, we had no chance to make any defense, and surrendered sooner than run the risk of being killed. They had been lying in wait for us there for several hours. They had seen a reward out, for notices were put up in the most public places, that fifty dollars would be paid for me, dead or alive, if I should not return home within so many days. And the reader will remember that neither Jack nor myself was able to read the advertisement. It was of very little consequence with the slave-catchers whether they killed us or took us alive, for the reward was the same to them. After we were taken and tied, one of the men declared to me that he would have shot me dead just as sure as he lived, if I had moved one step after they commanded us to stop. He had his gun leveled at my breast, already cocked, and his finger on the trigger. The way they came to find us out was from the circumstance of Jack's taking the man's hat in connection with the advertisement. The man whose hat was taken was drunk, and the next morning when he came to look for his hat it was gone, and Jack's old hat lying in the place of it. And in looking round he saw the tracks of two persons in the dust, who had passed during the night, and one of them having but three toes on one foot. He followed these tracks until they came to a large mud-pond in a lane, on one side of which a person might pass dry-shod. But the man with three toes on one foot had plunged through the mud. This led the man to think there must be runaway slaves, and from out of that neighborhood. For all persons in that settlement knew which side of that mud-hole to go. He then got others to go with him, and they followed us until our track left the road. They supposed that we had gone off in the woods to lay by until night, after which we should pursue our course. After we were captured, they took us off several miles to where one of them lived, and kept us overnight. One of our pigs was cooked for us to eat that night, and the turkey the next morning. But we were both tied that night with our hands behind us, and our feet were also tied. The doors were locked, and a bedstead was set against the front door, and two men slept in it to prevent our getting out in the night. They said that they knew how to catch runaway negroes, and how to keep them after they were caught. They remarked that after they found we had stopped to lay by until night, and they saw from our tracks what direction we were traveling, they went about ten miles on that direction, and hid by the roadside until we came up that night. That night, after all had got fast asleep, I thought I would try to get out, and I should have succeeded if I could have moved the bed from the door. I managed to untie myself and crawled under the bed which was placed at the door, and strove to remove it, but in so doing I awakened the men, and they got up and confined me again, and watched me until daylight, each with a gun in hand. The next morning they started with us back to Deacon Whitfield's plantation, 
but when they got within ten miles of where he lived, they stopped at a public house to stay overnight, and who should we meet there but the deacon, who was then out looking for me? The reader may well imagine how I felt to meet him. I had almost as soon come in contact with Satan himself. He had two long poles or sticks of wood brought in to confine us to. I was compelled to lie on my back across one of those sticks with my arms out, and have them lashed fast to the log with a cord. My feet were also tied to the other, and there I had to lie all that night with my back across this stick of wood, and my feet and hands tied. I suffered that night under the most excruciating pain. From the tight binding of the cord, the circulation of the blood in my arms and feet was almost entirely stopped. If the night had been much longer, I must have died in that confinement. The next morning we were taken back to the deacon's farm, and both flogged for going off, and set to work. But there was some allowance made for me on account of my being young. They said that they knew old Jack had persuaded me off, or I never would have gone. And the deacon's wife begged that I might be favored some, for that time, as Jack had influenced me, so as to bring up my old habits of running away that I had entirely given up. End of chapter 12 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista Section 13 of Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave Written by himself This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, Written by Himself Chapter 13 I am sold to gamblers. They try to purchase my family. Our parting scene. My good usage. I am sold to an Indian. His confidence in my integrity manifested. The reader will remember that this brings me back to the time the deacon had ordered me to be kept in confinement until he got a chance to sell me, and that no negro should ever get away from him and live. Some days after this, we were all out at the gin house, ginning cotton, which was situated on the roadside, and there came along a company of men, fifteen or twenty in number, who were southern sportsmen. Their attention was attracted by the load of iron which was fastened about my neck with a bell attached. They stopped and asked the deacon what that bell was put on my neck for, and he said it was to keep me from running away, etc. They remarked that I looked as if I might be a smart negro, and asked if he wanted to sell me. The reply was yes. They then got off their horses and struck a bargain with him for me. They bought me at a reduced price for speculation. After they had purchased me, I asked the privilege of going to the house to take leave of my family before I left, which was granted by the sportsman. But the deacon said I should never again step my foot inside of his yard, and advised the sportsman not to take the irons from my neck until they had sold me, that if they gave me the least chance, I would run away from them, as I did from him. So I was compelled to mount a horse and go off with them, as I supposed, never again to meet my family in this life. We had not proceeded far before they informed me that they had bought me to sell again, and if they kept the irons on me it would be detrimental to the sale, and that they would therefore take off the irons and dress me up like a man, 
and throw away the old rubbish which I then had on, and they would sell me to someone who would treat me better than Deacon Whitfield. After they had cut off the irons and dressed me up, they crossed over Red River into Texas, where they spent some time horse-racing and gambling. And although they were wicked blacklegs of the basest character, it is but due to them to say that they used me far better than ever the deacon did. They gave me plenty to eat, and put nothing hard on me to do. They expressed much sympathy for me in my bereavement, and almost every day they gave me money more or less, and by my activity in waiting on them, and upright conduct, I got into the good graces of them all. But they could not get any person to buy me on account of the amount of intelligence which they supposed me to have for many of them thought that I could read and write. When they left Texas, they intended to go to the Indian Territory west of the Mississippi to attend a great horse race which was to take place. Not being much out of their way to go past Deacon Whitfield's again, I prevailed on them to call on him for the purpose of trying to purchase my wife and child, and I promised them that if they would buy my wife and child, I would get some person to purchase us from them. So they tried to grant my request by calling on the deacon and trying to make the purchase. As we approached the deacon's plantation, my heart was filled with a thousand painful and fearful apprehensions. I had the fullest confidence in the black legs with whom I traveled, believing that they would do according to promise, and go to the fullest extent of their ability to restore peace and consolation to a bereaved family, to reunite husband and wife, parent and child who had long been severed by slavery through the agency of Deacon Whitfield. But I knew his determination in relation to myself, and I feared his wicked opposition to a restoration of myself and little family, which he had divided, and soon found that my fears were not without foundation. When we rode up and walked into his yard, the deacon came out and spoke to all but myself, and not finding me in tattered rags as a substitute for clothes, nor having an iron collar or bell about my neck, as was the case when he sold me, he appeared to be much displeased. "'What did you bring that negro back here for?' said he. "'We have come to try to buy his wife and child, for we can find no one who is willing to buy him alone, and we will either buy or sell so that the family may be together,' said they. While this conversation was going on, my poor bereaved wife, who never expected to see me again in this life, spied me and came rushing to me through the crowd, throwing her arms about my neck, exclaiming in the most sympathetic tones, Oh, my dear husband, I never expected to see you again. The poor woman was bathed with tears of sorrow and grief. But no sooner had she reached me than the deacon peremptorily commanded her to go to her work. This she did not obey but prayed that her master would not separate us again, as she was there alone, far from friends and relations, whom she should never meet again. And now to take away her husband, her last and only true friend, would be like taking her life. But such appeals made no impression on the unfeeling deacon's heart. While he was storming with abusive language and even using the gory lash with hellish vengeance to separate husband and wife, I could see the sympathetic teardrop stealing its way down the cheek of the profligate and blackleg, whose object it now was to bind up the broken heart of a wife and restore to the arms of a bereaved husband his companion. 
they were disgusted at the conduct of Whitfield and cried out shame, even in his presence. They told him that they would give a thousand dollars for my wife and child, or anything in reason. But no, he would sooner see me to the devil than indulge or gratify me after my having run away from him. And if they did not remove me from his presence very soon, he said he should make them suffer for it. But all this, and even the gory lash, had yet failed to break the grasp of poor Melinda, whose prospect of connubial, social, and future happiness was all at stake. When the dear woman saw there was no help for us, and that we should soon be separated forever, in the name of Deacon Whitfield and American slavery, to meet no more as husband and wife, parent and child, the last and loudest appeal was made on our knees. We appealed to the God of justice and to the sacred ties of humanity, but this was all in vain. The louder we prayed, the harder he whipped, amid the most heart-rending shrieks from the poor slave mother and child, as little Frances stood by, sobbing at the abuse inflicted on her mother. Oh, how shall I give my husband the parting hand never to meet again? This will surely break my heart, were her parting words. I can never describe to the reader the awful reality of that separation, for it was enough to chill the blood and stir up the deepest feelings of revenge in the hearts of slave-holding blacklegs, who, as they stood by, were threatening, some weeping, some swearing, and others declaring vengeance against such treatment being inflicted on a human being. As we left the plantation, as far as we could see and hear, the deacon was still laying on the gory lash, trying to prevent poor Melinda from weeping over the loss of her departed husband, who was then, by the hellish laws of slavery, to her, theoretically and practically, dead. One of the blacklegs exclaimed that hell was full of just such deacons as Whitfield. This occurred in December 1840. I have never seen Melinda since that period. I never expect to see her again. The sportsmen to whom I was sold showed their sympathy for me not only by word but by deeds. They said that they had made the most liberal offer to Whitfield to buy or sell for the sole purpose of reuniting husband and wife. But he stood out against it. They felt sorry for me. They said they had bought me to speculate on, and were not able to lose what they had paid for me. But they would make a bargain with me if I was willing, and would lay a plan by which I might yet get free. If I would use my influence so as to get some person to buy me while traveling about with them, they would give me a portion of the money for which they sold me, and they would also give me directions by which I might yet run away and go to Canada. This offer I accepted, and the plot was made. They advised me to act very stupid in language and thought, but in business I must be spry, and that I must persuade men to buy me and promise them that I would be smart. We passed through the state of Arkansas and stopped at many places, horse racing and gambling. My business was to drive a wagon in which they carried their gambling apparatus, clothing, etc. I had also to black boots and attend to horses. We stopped at Fayetteville, where they almost lost me, betting on a horse race. They went from thence to the Indian Territory, among the Cherokee Indians, to attend the great races which were to take place there. During the races there was a very wealthy half-Indian of that tribe who became much attached to me, and had some notion of buying me, after hearing that I was for sale, being a slaveholder. 
The idea struck me rather favorable, for several reasons. First, I thought I should stand a better chance to get away from an Indian than from a white man. Second, he wanted me only for a kind of a body servant to wait on him, and in this case I knew that I should fare better than I should in the field. And my owners also told me that it would be an easy place to get away from. I took their advice for fear I might not get another chance so good as that, and prevailed on the man to buy me. He paid them nine hundred dollars in gold and silver for me. I saw the money counted out. After the purchase was made, the sportsmen got me off to one side, and, according to promise, they gave me a part of the money and directions how to get from there to Canada. They also advised me how to act until I got a good chance to run away. I was to embrace the earliest opportunity of getting away, before they should become acquainted with me. I was never to let it be known where I was from, nor where I was born. I was to act quite stupid and ignorant, and when I started, I was to go up the boundary line between the Indian Territory and the states of Arkansas and Missouri, and this would fetch me out on the Missouri River, near Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri. I was to travel at first by night, and to lay by in daylight until I got out of danger. The same afternoon that the Indian bought me, he started with me to his residence, which was fifty or sixty miles distant, and so great was his confidence in me that he entrusted me to carry his money. The amount must have been at least five hundred dollars, which was all in gold and silver, and when we stopped overnight, the money and horses were all left in my charge. It would have been a very easy matter for me to have taken one of the best horses with the money and run off, and the temptation was truly great to a man like myself who was watching for the earliest opportunity to escape, and I felt confident that I should never have a better opportunity to escape full-handed than then. End of chapter 13 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista